This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. The Buddha said, if you seek joy and peace in the serenity and tranquility of non-doing, you should keep away from disturbances and dwell alone in a quiet place. Those who dwell in quiet places are praised by Sakrendra, chief of the gods, and by celestial beings. Therefore, casting away attachment to yourself and others, dwell alone in a quiet place and contemplate the cause of suffering. To liberate oneself from complicated involvements is called non-attachment. I've been speaking of the eight awarenesses of an enlightened being. And from the perspective of the Mahayana tradition, this was the Buddha's last teaching before his, his passing. And this is the third awareness, enjoying serenity and tranquility. Uh, the first of these is having few desires, and the second is knowing how to be satisfied. And so, you know, if you look at them, they, they really uh, come together. They build on one another. Desiring little of what we don't have, we don't crave as much. Craving is a cause of suffering. Being satisfied with what we do have, we can be more at peace. We're able then to enjoy serenity and tranquility. So in other words, wanting much, being dissatisfied, it's unlikely that we will feel serene and tranquil. Resting in the serenity and tranquility, we're able to keep away from disturbances and dwell alone in a quiet place, even in the midst of large crowds, even in the midst of noise-filled spaces is not dwelling alone on top of a mountain. It is dwelling alone and quiet in myself. And serenity or equanimity is one of the ten paramis, paramitas in Sanskrit. The perfections or virtuous qualities of a bodhisattva, an enlightenment being. And equanimity is also some sure many of you know, is the fourth of the four immeasurables of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And so it is a key uh, quality of a practitioner traveling the path to awakening. We could also say is one of the byproducts of practice, a result of practice, but not just at the end of practice of the path, It can be present in the beginning, it can be present in the middle, and it certainly is present at the end. It is also considered one of the three factors of consciousness. So samadhi, concentration, is the um, sharpening factor. Mindfulness is the seeing factor, and equanimity is the balancing factor. And uh, traditionally, equanimity is understood as a state in which neither aversion or desire arise. Its characteristic is to promote neutrality. Its function is to see things impartially, without preference. 
but let me clarify that this, what this means is that when aversion and desire do arise, as they do on occasion, that enjoying serenity means that we don't get thrown by them. We see in a moment, oh, a moment of clinging, a moment of anger, a moment of fear. So being, being equanimous doesn't mean that we don't feel. It certainly doesn't mean that we don't care. It means caring deeply, but not being disturbed by that caring. Not being in conflict with one's thoughts and emotions. Not being in conflict with circumstances that may be either good or bad. Not being in conflict with others. Not seeing others as separate, but seeing them as my own body. Right? We're not at odds with our hands, with our spleen. In the same way, when I understand that you are part of me, and I am part of you, that you are me, then serenity has the opportunity to arise. So when the Buddha says dwelling alone, he really means dwelling all one. It means that when you sit alone on your seat, you leave no one out. Because actually you can't. We can turn away, we can ignore, but we can't actually leave anyone out. Because there is no out. There is no elsewhere. There is no other place. So we could say that serenity and tranquility rest on a clear understanding of the the unity, the equality, the identity of all things. But given that we live in a world of differences, a world where we do experience ups and downs and pain and pleasure and grief and joy, given that we live in a world that is deeply divided and unequal, how do we attain true serenity? First, by non-doing, the Buddha says by secluding ourselves in order to see ourselves more clearly. And he's really saying, let things be simple. Let them be uncomplicated so that you can be free. So there is the non-doing that is the, the stopping of the constant uh, creation and proliferation of thoughts. It's a big part of what is happening in Zazen, right? We are, we're stopping from that creation. So it is necessary to know when to speak and to act, when to move, and when to be still and silent. And I've really thought for some time now that being still and silent is one of the greatest abilities that we have. Because we know how to make much. We're not so good at not making. What the Buddha called the eye-making and mind-making that leads to all sorts of complications, that leads to suffering. So in one way, he's saying, simplify, pare things down. Make it easier for yourself by dwelling alone in a quiet place. In this, he says, even the gods will praise, because they recognize 
it makes it easier to look at the cause of suffering. And it's interesting how sometimes people will be going through a very difficult time in their lives, and they say, I can't, I can't practice, I can't sit. But that is the time when we need it the most. Sometimes it's difficult. It's difficult to be with oneself if what is coming up you don't want to see. But otherwise, it's like um, driving a car with a blindfold. And so, you know, he, he, he is saying, become quiet and focus your mind. This is a, um, a little bit of an aside, but yesterday I was going to go for a run and uh, I speak often about just running, you know, not, not having uh, music. If you're running on the treadmill, you know, I don't watch television. I don't read a book or a magazine. You know, I just run. And I do these retreats that uh, um, speak of running as a meditation, as a moving meditation. But I had heard that Shugen Sensei had given a good talk during Sashin a couple of days ago. And I had it, I had downloaded it, and I had it on my iPod. And I thought, well, you know, maybe just this once. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm putting it on, the, on my iPod. And then uh, I thought, you know, you know, you, you're, you're, you always uh, speak about how not to do this. And you know the one time that you do it, somebody's going to see you and be like, Suisse, you're, you know, you're using your iPod. And of course, I hadn't even walked through the door. I walked out of the room. <laughs> I had just changed. I walked out of the room. And uh, parents were here for Zen Kids. And uh, one of the parents was like, oh, are you going to take your earphones with you? And I was like, well, you know, Shugen Sensei gave this talk. Blah, blah, blah. She was like, yeah, the last talk I heard by him, he was talking about people being on their bikes and uh, having their earphones <laughs> <laughs> and not paying attention. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. And I still, I still took them, you know, and I put them on and I started running. And it was really windy. So I couldn't hear what Shugen Sensei was saying. <laughs> the things kept falling out of my ears. I was like, ah, oh, forget it. It was like I lasted two, two blocks. Uh, so much for focusing, focusing my mind. But so a big part of practice is, in fact, that uh, both non-doing and the just doing of the one thing. You know, we speak of it all the time. You do one thing. You do what you're doing as you're doing it. And there is also non-doing of a, of a different kind, of staying so close that the doing disappears, like a top spinning in perfect balance. It is moving so effortlessly that it appears to not be moving at all. So there is running, let's say, and knowing that you're running. And there is running and not knowing that you're running. The whole universe runs. And there is no one to know. But again, how do we find tranquility in a world and with minds that so often seem anything but calm and quiet? How do we enjoy serenity in a world that is terribly complicated and sometimes very difficult to understand, where it is difficult to find the time and the space, sometimes the inclination to be quiet? If we trust 
that the Buddha's teachings are accurate. If we believe that when he spoke about suffering, he was, spoken, he was speaking of universal suffering, of human-created suffering, then we'd have to believe that what he was speaking of 2,500 years ago is still relevant for me today, even though the world may look a little different. But suffering is suffering. And if we understand it correctly, if we have the right view about it, then its alleviation follows. But that there is the truth of suffering and there is its end, which he described as the path, the Noble Eightfold Path, which should be true regardless of time or place. And yet, one of you brought up something recently that got me thinking, and that was the idea of a black liberation and white liberation. And I thought to myself, you know, what is that? Is there such a thing? Is there such a thing as female liberation, male liberation, transgender, gay liberation, straight liberation, and so on? And now, liberation, nirvana, in its classical definition, is cessation. It is putting an end to the round of rebirth understanding how we come into being through the chain of dependent origination, which the Buddha laid out after his enlightenment, that aging and death come from birth, which comes from becoming, which comes from clinging, from craving, from feeling, from contact, name and form, and consciousness. And it's a cycle that is repeated endlessly, bringing us into being. And, and, it's a, and it's a teaching that is actually difficult, difficult to understand. There's a sutra in which Ananda says to him, you know, this is, this is so incredible uh, how, how complete of a teaching this is, and I understand it so clearly. And the Buddha says, don't say that. It can take several lifetimes to fully understand this chain of dependent origination. And yet... Again, in the sutras, a fully enlightened being is one who understands that chain, who understands how to break it, understands how the loops are connected together, and so can choose not to take birth again, unless they choose to come back to teach, to serve. But it is a choice. A fully enlightened being has realized the unbinding, and so is free of suffering. And so nirvana is cessation and is liberation independent of circumstances. It's unconditioned. It is not white or black, male or female. It has no gender, no identity, no preference, no race, no class, no religion even. So this is in the province of Buddhists. It is not dependent on intelligence or ability. It cannot be willed. It cannot be produced. It can only be realized. And all of us, having human birth, have the capacity to do that. At the same time, we live in a world that is the world of conditions. So my traveling of the path is irrevocably shaped by my experience, right? which is different from your experience. And so how and whether I arrive at that universal liberation 
will necessarily be affected by my circumstances. I was speaking to, to a friend who is working um, to stop human trafficking. And, you know, th- these are um, hundreds, thousands or more, you know, people for whom liberation is not liberation from no self, it's not liberation from rebirth, it's, it's very practically, very directly liberation from bondage. It's having a roof over their heads enough money to, to eat a meal. And so most of them will never hear about the Dharma or have an opportunity to practice it. Right? So clearly, although all of us have the capacity to become li- liberated, not all of us will have the opportunity to do so. So although suffering is universal, the types of suffering that we experience are quite different. So, you know, for example, although racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, and other forms of oppression, although they affect all of us, the oppressor and the oppressed, they don't affect us equally. And, you know, I think we, we know this. So as a white woman, I simply do not experience the same suffering as a young black man, as a gay man, a quadriplegic. And yet, again, you know, if all three of us uh, realize ourselves, all four of us realize ourselves, what we would realize would be the same. There's not, there's not different kinds of realization. And yet, if and how we get there in terms of um, the karma that we'll have to, to grapple with, will we'll determine if and how we get there. And so the catch is, you know, I don't think we'll be able to truly fulfill our vows to save all sentient beings, let alone enjoy serenity and tranquility, until black liberation becomes just as possible, as viable as white liberation, female liberation, disabled liberation, poor liberation, become just as possible. And you know, in the, in the sutras, it still says that in order to become enlightened, you have to be, more, be born uh, male, and you have to be a monastic, you have to become ordained. And now, for some time now, women and lay practitioners have been proving otherwise. But the karma of those teachings is our karma. It's part of the baggage that we still carry and that we must contend with. And to this day, you know, Zen has a, an image, an image that I, I would like to turn on its head, you know, that it's, that it's largely male, you know, that it's uh, in this country white, that is patriarchal, hierarchical, tough to the point of being macho and kind of cold, not very feeling full. Zen is none of those things. Zen is the study of the self, is the realization of that self, is the manifestation of wisdom and compassion among human beings and among the things and the many other beings of this world. But it has taken the shape, the karma of our culture, of our world. 
So I was telling somebody, you know, when we do a session at the monastery every month, our intensive retreat, by the end of the week, there's 95 people. And 95% of them are white every month, pretty much. In residency, it's not unusual for, for there to be two-thirds men to women, usually young men. And, you know, and there's, there's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's ways in which, you know, our structure, our language, our system recreates some old, old patterns. And yet we're working to change this. We're doing this beyond fear of differences work. Many of you are involved in it to look at the ways in which we don't see one another, the ways in which we do oppress one another and are oppressed, the ways in which we fear, the ways in which we um, choose power over Right? instead of empowerment with. But we're studying that. We're doing that uh, work, difficult work. It's not, it's not something that you wake up in the morning and think, oh, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to it in the sense of, of, of what it uh, brings up about yourself, about the world you live in. And yet we're doing that. We're, we, there's been a number of new dedications. Some of you may have noticed some of the dedications that we're chanting are different to include the female ancestors. And uh, they're, they're now incorporated as, in different parts as part of our liturgy, some of it daily liturgy, some of it our weekly liturgy. Um, now when somebody takes Chukai, the precepts, they also receive the female list of ancestors, not just the male one. We have um, asked um, craftsmen in Bali, who's worked with us before, to make a couple of statues for our altar to, to sit with, to flank the Buddha. One of them is uh, Prajnaparamita, the mother of all Buddhas, the womb of all Buddhas, who's also the mother of it's, uh, wisdom, the, the representation of wisdom in Buddhism. And the other one would be a Kuan Yin in Royal East, Bodhisattva of Compassion. And so all of these are good, good, good steps, and we have to keep going. You know, I, I personally, I feel we need to, to dismantle some of these old systems and make sure that, they don't, that we don't keep recreating them, right? Because that's how they continue. And to make sure that true teachings, liberating teachings, don't get um, corrupted or become twisted and turned into dogma. I've told this story before, but I don't think I've told it here, of a Christian monastery in which the monks, one of their main uh, practices was to copy the scriptures. And they um, got a new abbot. And uh, he realized when he came in that they were using copies to copy. And he said, well, why aren't you using the, the originals? And somebody said to him, well, we, we never do. We never touch them. They are locked away in our library. And so one day he decided that he was going to go look at them. And he, he goes into, he, the library is locked, and so he unlocks it. And he disappears, not seen uh, for, for two days. And so somebody goes 
looking for him, you know, to get him, and they find him, and he's all discombobulated and looking kind of disheveled, you know, he's unshaven, and he's looking at this book, and he just looks at the person, and he says, the word was celebrate. <laughs> and if you, if you don't get that, ask someone later. <laughs> this is how things get a little out of whack. <laughs> now, you know, and I know what I'm saying is not new. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing how, how not new uh, it is, you know, how, how entrenched. Um, you know, like that cartoon that came out uh, last year, I think, in The New Yorker. There's a, a guy in the kind of the back chamber of a cave and um, with a huge stone wheel. And in the front is, a, I assume, his wife talking to her friend. And she's saying to her, no, he's not reinventing it. He's just making it great again. <laughs> uh, and you know, we don't have to do either. But uh, what I do think that we need is uh, great clarity and, and courage and determination, persistence to discern, really, to discern what is skillful teaching and what is baggage, what is cultural baggage, what is societal baggage. And more than, than baggage, what is still... Um, what are we still actively using, you know, to keep each other down? And so we need each other, especially the voices that are normally heard, because they're the ones that have the most to teach us about how to do things differently. In other words, we need sangha, community of good friends, of noble friends, the Buddha called them on the path. And I was telling the residents the other day, you know, when you think of Sangha, it's not that it was just a, a, a group of like-minded people that happened to find this thing that we're interested in. Sangha, the, really the only reason we come together is to help each other to wake up. So, in a sense, that's what you're agreeing to, whether you're a formal student or not. That's what you're saying. I, I come here, I show up every week or how often, however often you do, because I, I want to help you to do that. I want you to help me also to wake up. And so we're friends, but not in the usual way, although friendships do, do form. You know, sometimes we have to say the hard thing to say. If we care about one another, one another if we love one another, you know, to, to not be afraid to, um, to wake up together. In the Upada Sutta, uh, which I think is called Half of the Holy Life, Ananda says to the Buddha, this is half of, of the holy life, Lord, good friendship, good companionship, and good camaraderie. And the Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda. Good friendship, good companionship, and good camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. When a student of the way has good people as friends, companions, and comrades, they can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. They can be expected to practice the path of awakening. 
they can expect to have support and guidance and companionship, both when the sailing is smooth and clear and when it is so rough you can't distinguish the ocean from the sky. That is what we do for each other. And that is the, the irony and the, the mystery of practice. You know, we come into, into it often thinking, well, you know, I'll take care of my own pain, my own suffering. I certainly did. And very quickly you find that taking care of others is exactly, exactly the right medicine. Exactly what we need to heal a mind that sometimes is tired, angry, confused, afraid. And by taking care, you know, I don't mean anything complicated. And I certainly don't mean excluding, ignoring yourself. You have to include the whole thing. So I mean turning towards another when doing so feels like the last thing that you want to do. That is great practice for living in Sangha. You think to yourself, as I have many, many, many times, I can't uh, do another thing. I can't speak to one more person. And then somebody's there. What do you do? You go hide or you turn. You know, you, you sit down. Maybe you have a meal together. And they ask you, how did you come into practice? And you begin to tell you know, your story. And then you start to kind of warm up into it, to it. And, and before long, you're deep in conversation and you're meeting this other human being. And you realize, oh, actually, I feel pretty good. What a nice surprise. So if you live alone, come here <laughs> when you're in a funk. You know, come sit, come help us cook a meal, clean a bathroom. Put your body to work and your mind to rest. That is the self-care of the most effective kind. Ask someone else how they're doing. Listen with interest and attention, with love, knowing that not because they have to or because now they, you owe them or they owe you, that they will do the same thing. They will do the same thing for you when you need that. So when the Buddha said, be a refuge unto yourselves, he didn't mean go solo. Even that translation that says, be an island unto yourself, it, it, it doesn't mean uh, be isolated he really meant be a refuge so large that no one will be left out. Don't leave anyone out of your mind, your awareness, your heart, your body, if you know that this body is this body. So the fact is liberation is our birthright. For each and every one of us. Even when it doesn't feel like it, when it feels very far away, when it feels impossible. The fact that it's universal means that there's no point at which it is not. No point, no place where it is missing. But we need to bring it to life. We need to realize it. And that is the work. That is the work of a lifetime. And to do that not only on your cushion, which as I've, I've said to some people, you know, that's the easy part after a while, is to bring it truly to, into bloom in the world. 
in the world of differences, in a world that seems and feels divided, but isn't really. I think if we can remember that, then we can keep doing the work that is necessary. It isn't really divided. And when we divide it, it's simply because we're not seeing clearly. But we can. We always have the capacity to see a little bit more. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.